It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a Thursday. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton along with my co-host John Riley. We welcome you to Hacksaw's Headlines, our weekly podcast. John, as we head towards a great sports weekend, I think we're going to be here till Saturday. We have so many topics on the table. How are you? I'm doing good. I mean, yeah, you, you rolled in the door <laughs> with this huge list. And I'm thinking, man, hopefully we can fit it all in today. Uh, last words on the Super Bowl. That's where we'll start, and then we're going to jump from the NFL. We're going to talk Major League Baseball. we got news and notes and a couple of other sports stories that we'll canvas today. But before we start, John, remind everybody that's with us on the live stream how they can join us in the Fans Forum, how they can subscribe to get access to everything else that we're doing uh, with our podcast almost on a day-by-day basis. Okay, so the Fans Forum, you can get involved with your question or hot take for Hacksaw Type it in on the live stream on Facebook or YouTube, and we'll see it up here on our screen. We'll get you involved. It'll be a lot of fun in the Fans Forum segment at the conclusion of Hacksaw's Headlines. And yeah, like, follow, subscribe, share. You, know, you can uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including on YouTube. So, you know, just uh, just be connected and follow along, and you'll get updates on all the new episodes. You'll get all these alerts because we're putting stuff up on the YouTube channel virtually every day. Reminder, if you like sports, if you liked our talk show the way we did it at 690 and 1090, check my website. It's all written. It's posted every night. It's there every morning. It's LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Check it daily. You'll like it. John, the end of the football season, but we got final comments to make about the Super Bowl and then other storylines spilling off the Super Bowl as we now move officially into the NFL offseason. Yeah, so um, yeah, we can break down the Super Bowl because... There are a few things we want to wrap up, but it seems like so much more excitement as we're going towards spring training. But yeah, there still are a few things to chat about with Super Bowl Sunday. They had the unbelievable parade in Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey in the Super Bowl trophy. Uh, still a lot of conversation about how Andy Reid rescued his football team, how they handed Nick Sirianni a really tough loss when you're up 24-14. That's tough. But I think the Eagles have really handled the defeat well. I think they've learned a lot from it. In terms of Andy Reid, he kind of talked specifics this week uh, about the Super Bowl, how bad it was early, what happened at halftime, how they rallied and made the thing work, and it was kind of fascinating to listen. And I had talked about the fact that they had always put, because of the bye week, a plan A in. This is our game plan, but if something happens to Mahomes, we go to plan B. The thing I never imagined, and I did make unbelievable adjustments to change the whole chemistry of the game, I never thought about the fact they had more than 35 minutes in that locker room at halftime to actually walk through all the adjustments they were making with Plan B. Wow. It was not a typical 12-minute halftime where you hardly have any time because Andy Reid met with his coaches and said, Mahomes is hurt. He's going to play the second half. We don't know that it'll be vintage Mahomes. We're going to go to plan B. And plan B was to have him come out under center. Plan B was to go to two running backs at times. Plan B would be going to go to two tight ends. Plan B would do a lot of motion, jet sweeps. But they had 35 minutes with the players. Separated the players offensively. Guys, this is what we're doing. Remember, this is what we practiced. They may have showed them some video in that 35-minute window. 
and they came out with Mahomes under center, and it changed the whole chemistry of the game. And, of course, defensively, we talked about they went to a five-man front to try to stop Jalen Hurts from the quarterback draws, and the running game went away and suddenly became strictly a passing game, and Philadelphia could not get the job done. So it's just fascinating to hear Andy Reid unveil how they accomplished what they accomplished with the unsung heroes and all that other stuff. Kansas City wins, tough loss Philadelphia, but best quarterback, best play caller in football. Holy cow. Well, you know, I guess that Rihanna Long Super Bowl halftime show worked to their advantage. Um, I I was reading about uh, how... There's a some sort of a rule that the Chiefs have as they manage Andy Reid that if if the Chiefs are losing and he's coming off at halftime, he doesn't have to talk to the the sportscaster on the field. Is that right? Well, that was the first I had heard that. But usually, you know, you get you get thirty seconds with the coach and the the sideline analyst asks a generic question, they get a generic answer, and is really to me there's no value because nobody's tipping their hand about anything. Oh yeah, Mahomes is hurt, we don't know. And and that that's the way halftime is. I don't think there's great, great value there. I think the analysts uh on the set have a lot more value to give you. So I don't worry too much about the coach giving you a six-word answer. Okay, yeah. It just seems like they've got one foot out the door. They're just wanting to get back into the into the break room so they can get busy with their players. Well, how brilliant was he, though? 35-minute halftime adjustment. And that that is radical for them to be able to do as much as they did and then do it so well once they came on the field. Four straight scoring possessions. Okay, let's go from on the field. Let's go to the TV sets, John. Okay, so the, you share these numbers. Numbers with me, and these are really amazing. I mean, this is huge numbers watching this game. Third highest in the history of the National Football League, 113 million viewers in the United States. The all-time highest is 114 million, which was the Patriots Seattle Seahawks football uh, Super Bowl, I don't know, four or five years ago. Canada, all-time record. These these numbers that they're showing in Canada. Those are typical NHL Stanley Cup numbers, and they got that for the National Football League. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, The streaming numbers are really impressive. Mexico, for some reason, was a huge drop-off, and nobody can explain why that happened. Seven million streaming, all-time highest in the National Football League. And, of course, streaming has become the in thing. Just look at our YouTube channel. (laughs) And And look at the market shares and the ratings for Kansas City and Philadelphia. That's the number of sets, 87 share, 87% share of sets were turned on at some point to the Chiefs game in Kansas City and 77 share in Philadelphia. Just phenomenal TV numbers. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, I had heard also that the, the Rihanna Super Bowl, talk about Rihanna all the time, the Super Bowl halftime show even had more. 118. Yeah, so that's incredible to me. But the NFL is really trying to do this international expansion. It's nice to see them getting those numbers in Canada. I'm kind of curious what they were getting in the U.K., maybe parts of Europe, because I know that's an expansion target as well. Yeah, well, they are expanding regular season games. I mean, they've been in England. They're, they're going to be permanently in Germany. They are dabbling with should we go into France. They're talking about Paris. Uh, they're talking about possibly Lisbon, Spain. They will go back to Mexico City. Uh, earthquakes and, and COVID had a lot to do with why they had to back out of the, the game in Mexico 
City. So they're continuing to expand this whole thing. Okay, so we go from television. Let's talk about coaching jobs. Yeah, so I guess the final two slots have already been filled now, Cardinals and Colts. So let's break it down. Well, Arizona uh, hired a young guy. Indianapolis hired an even younger guy. Cardinals interviewed a ton of people. Indianapolis interviewed even more. The Colts wound up with 15 different finalists. Indianapolis hired Shane Steichen. He's the offensive coordinator in Philadelphia. Real fast-track guy. He used to be here. He mm-hmm. was a quarterback coach for the Chargers, and he did a really good job. And he went to Philadelphia, and he, with Nick Sirianni, played a tremendous role in jumping forward with Jalen Hurts and making him a really accomplished passer. When that kid was a quarterback at Alabama and a quarterback at Oklahoma, Jalen Hurts was strictly a running guy, and he'd throw on occasion. Well, obviously, we've seen what he did this year with over 4,700 all-purpose yards. So Steichen goes in there to Indianapolis, and he goes in without a quarterback. I mean, they've since Andrew Luck retired, they've had four different veteran guys in four years. And out of that group, really, only Phillip Rivers is the only one that statistically did really well. And then it became the disaster that was Matt Ryan and all the injuries this past season. So Steichen goes to Indianapolis with a lot of accolades. He's been praised by an awful lot of coaches. Arizona situation, John Gannon comes out of nowhere. Uh, Jonathan Gannon, defensive coordinator, Philadelphia, goes to Arizona, uh, had one interview, hired him almost on the spot after the interview on Monday. Uh, guy helped mold that Eagle defense as general manager went out and got him a lot of quality players to make the Philadelphia defense a Super Bowl-type team. He walks into a tough situation. He's going to have to hire a good offensive coordinator who's going to be able to put his thumb down on Kyler Murray and make him a better, more consistent quarterback. Uh, he also walks into a situation where their defense is, is ragtag. And it, they have Arizona's got 38 unsigned free agents. So I think there's going to be a lot of roster churn and turnover there. Uh, Indianapolis, if they get everybody back healthy, and that was the biggest issue that killed them last year, and they're going to have to go get a quarterback. Uh, But if they get everybody back healthy, I think they'll jump back quicker. And I don't know what to make of the Arizona situation because everybody in NFL circles is of the opinion Kyler Murray's not a student of the game. He's just kind of living off his athleticism. And if you're going to be an NFL quarterback, you got to be fanatical about fanatical about studying. Mm-hmm. And Murray has not really shown that yet. So last two coaching jobs were higher, uh, are, are, are hired. Uh, the, I think the novel one to me is is Frank Reich in Carolina because I do think that's a smart guy, and they're going to go get a quarterback, and then we'll see if he can he can fix Carolina like he kind of fixed Indianapolis after Andrew Luck retired. And then obviously the impact of Sean Payton landing in Denver with both feet on the ground like a hurricane. So it's <laughs> interesting offseason, but your reaction to the last two hires? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I love seeing young guys get a shot, but the one piece that I noticed is on Twitter, I saw a video of Jeff Saturday on like a little fishing boat recording a video and really class act, wishing, you know, Steichen, you know, the best of luck and really, you know, supporting uh, Colts Nation. Well, I mean, he did as as good as he could. I think he was overwhelmed when the Colts appointed him the interim head coach. They did finish 1-7. and They actually wound up losing 10 of their last 11. It's just kind of miserable. Uh, The whole Matt Ryan thing blew up in their face. So they've got a lot of work to do, but they were really beset by a lot of injuries to core players. And if they could ever get all those guys back on the field, then maybe the job will be a little bit easier uh, for Shane Steichen. 
Uh, meanwhile, we got uh, other storylines here. You were speaking of quarterbacks, and how about how about what's going to happen next uh, in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, we talked about the quarterback derby, and some of them are already sorting out. But we got some big names on the board right now, Hacksaw. Well, let's talk about uh, who's available at this point from the veterans' perspective. Derek Carr was released by the Raiders. I can't believe the Raiders mishandled this the way they did. They get no compensation. If they had allowed him to go talk to teams, they could have worked out a conditional trade and gotten draft pick payback for nine years of service. Instead, they get cap space, $29 million cap space, but Derek Carr walks out the door, gets to handpick where he wants to go. Uh, he's visiting, been to New Orleans. I think there's a visit to Carolina uh, to meet with Frank Reich. Could be a visit to the New York Jets. Uh, remains to be seen if Washington is going to commit to their young quarterback that finished up last season, or whether or not they'd jump back in and and go get a market. But but he's going to he's going to get signed pretty quickly, and I think he'll be the first quarterback uh, that's going to be off the board. Aaron Rodgers is in the middle of his. Darkness. Aaron <laughs> Rodgers is trying to decide who loves me, who doesn't love me, where should I play, do I care, etc. But he's he's got all this money tied up in his contract. I just find it hard to believe that that he would leave Green Bay. He is Green Bay. He's a he's part of his history of Green Bay's great quarterbacks, which stretch from Brett Favre back to Bart Starr to Aaron Rodgers. I know the Jets are out there. The Jets supposedly preparing an offer for Aaron Rodgers. I just have a hard time believing that the Jets would do this, that they would give up a one and a three, because that's the rumor for a 38-year-old quarterback. I have a hard time believing Aaron Rodgers would leave the 404 area code. Doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. And the great mystery is Jimmy G. What does Garoppolo do in San, out of, coming out of San Francisco? It is interesting this week. Joe Montana popped off. He thinks the 49ers ought to keep Garoppolo. That's you got Brock Purdy, you got Trey Lance, both of them coming off surgeries. Garoppolo is off his surgery and is completely healthy. It'll be interesting to see who makes a run of Jimmy G. Don't rule out the Raiders on this one. Mm-hmm. And the reason, connect the dots, there's my pen. <laughs> Uh, head coach, Josh McDaniels. Mm-hmm. Where did Jimmy G come from before San Francisco? New England. New England. Mm-hmm. Who was his coordinator? Josh McDaniels. Mm-hmm. Maybe we connect the dots on that one. So, uh, give me your spin. What do you think uh, Carr winds up? What What does Aaron Rodgers decide? And then your thoughts on Jimmy G. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I saw those rumors as well about Jimmy G with the Raiders. I think that's a great spot for him um, because, because of the familiarity. And, you know, it's still kind of indirectly a connection to the Bay Area, so the locals will be happy for him. Um, as far as Aaron Rodgers go, yeah, just go back to Green Bay and you know, let's, let's get, get on with it. And then as far as Derek, Cars go, uh, talk, uh, going, yeah, Carolina makes sense, but I don't know. I just, I'd like to see him go to Washington. Because after everything the, the former Redskins, now commanders, have been through, it'd be nice for them to have a solid quarterback and to kind of rebuild that franchise. They've got some good young guys on that roster. They've not had any good quarterback in of late. Uh, but, you know, they're too deep at running back. They're probably three deep at wide receiver led by Terry McLaurin. Uh, you got Rivera. But they did draft Sam Howell, and that kid played pretty well right at the tail end of the season. And they kind of announced that Howell might be the quarterback uh, when when the OTAs open up for Washington. 
So why would Derek Carr want to go there unless there's a guarantee that I'm going to be the guy and they, they got to pay me a, a lot of money to go? Uh, I'd like to think New Orleans, but New Orleans has got such monstrous salary cap problems. I don't see how in the world New Orleans could creatively come up with some type of contract. So that bears watching. I do think Derek Carr is going to be the first domino that's going to go off the board. Okay, that's football. Before we get to baseball, let's just remind everybody about the Fans Forum and how they can subscribe so they'll get all the alerts Monday through Saturday uh, for what we put up on our uh, podcast. All right, we see we got a nice live stream audience going right now. So by all means, jump on board, get involved in the Fans Forum, leave your question or comment for Hacksaw. And by the way, if you're on watching the live stream on YouTube or Facebook, give it a thumbs up, a like, you know, that kind of helps out the algorithm, uh, kind of get a little more exposure for the podcast. And uh, at the same time, yes, yeah, subscribe on YouTube. I mean, that's just the easy thing to do. You get the you get the updates, the alerts whenever we drop all the new episodes and clips and now those YouTube shorts that we're doing. And a reminder, please check my website. If you like what we did on Talk Show Radio, you're going to like our website. It's all written. You give me five minutes and I'll give you every story in the world of sports. Website, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Hamilton.com. Baseball. Spring training has opened. Cactus League Grapefruit Circuit. Pitchers and catchers pouring into camps. Yeah, I mean, it's so much excitement. And I'm I'm following on my Twitter feed, like a lot of the local newscasters are out in Peoria. And so they're they're getting video shots of the guys hanging around the batting cage, guys working on infields. So the enthusiasm is through the roof. Well, story number one has to do with El Nino. And I'm not talking about the weather forecast <laughs> outside. I'm talking about Fernando Tatis. And then we're going to talk about the lineup changes and the way the dominoes are falling and pitching. I mean, there are a lot of baseball topics on the table. Tatis has started workouts in right field. He will get a look-see in center field during early spring training. They might play him in a couple slots just in the infield. They're also going to let him be a part-time designated hitter. You know, the the, the Padres' storylines as we start this camp is how healthy is he? Can he stay healthy? Wrist and shoulder. Can he cope with being public enemy number one? We thought Manny Machado got booed a lot of places. I think Tatis is going to get some of that belligerent reaction from different fans. And then thirdly, where do you play him? Right field is a huge challenge because of the the way the wall juts out in the corners and all that. Uh, he, He said this week... His preference is to play center field while Trent Grisham gold glove is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they'd move Grisham to right field. Uh, but this is still to be decided. we got six weeks to sort this out, but there's a whole pile of questions there. Juan Soto wants to play the same position every day. He's relocated. His metrics in right field were really poor. I did not realize how poor they were. I spent more time looking at his two thirty two batting average in San Diego, but his defensive metrics were not good. Soto has gone to left field. Hassan Kim is going to be your starting second baseman. Jake Cronenworth will be your first baseman. The big issue to me... You normally want a big guy at first base. And Jake Cronin is an undersized first baseman considering the norm of the size of first baseman around Major League Baseball. So I think those are the the marquee storylines, and it all starts with El Nino. 
Yeah, well, I, I kind of think you, we're going to see these guys move around a lot because um, A.J. Preller really likes what the Dodgers have done with a lot of that flexibility. And when you've got, you know, 23 shortstops on your roster, you know, you, you can move guys around. So um, I definitely agree. I think you're going to see um, Tatis and Wright. He'll probably be the number one guy to, to spell uh, Grisham in center when he needs a day off or they're facing a tough left-handed pitcher. And then, um, you know, all those guys are going to rotate through that DH spot. Carpenter can go out there and play in the outfield. So, um, you know, uh, Bob Melvin's got a lot of flexibility. And we're we're just so hung up on where we think um, Tatis is going to play, but it's all going to work out. It will work out if he doesn't get dinged. And, and obviously, these, these are some of the other storylines as it relates to El Nino. You know, the torque of a home run hitter in his wrist is really a violent swing. Does he have any setbacks with that surgery the two surgeries, and the permanent screw that's in that wrist. Big issue. He says the shoulder has been no problem. Now, he's going to have to change the way he plays. I don't think he's going to be allowed to be sliding headfirst into bases. That's a big issue. Mm -hmm. And because they don't want him at shortstop, diving for balls, landing on his shoulders, that's why he's a right fielder. But now now you get into the issue of diving for fly balls running into the wall. So there's a number of things there as it relates to his style of play. And then obviously, I think there's going to be just enormous pressure points on him emotionally. He's going to be the storyline every time they go play on the road. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's that guy. Look what that guy did. Mm -hmm. He got suspended. This guy got hurt. Um, I don't think it's going to be easy for him early on. He's just going to have to weather it, steel himself against whatever type of junk comes out of the stands from fans in places like Philadelphia, New York, etc. But uh, that's a storyline uh, worth watching. Now, Padres. Padres are really active. We thought they had emptied the checking account. Did not. I like this acquisition. He had a big bounce-back season. Michael Walker was a former... Frontline starter for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, Had a group of good years. Then he got hurt. Bounced around. Went to Tampa. Did not have a great season. Went to the Red Sox. And last year at Fenway Park, John, was 11-2 with an ERA at 2.45. Boston did not re-sign him because he was walking around the street saying, I want two years, $32 Well, he didn't get that. He's one of the last free agent pitchers who was still on the street corner as we started this past Monday. He signs with the Padres. He got kind of a unique deal. A four-year, $24 million contract, front-end loaded, with options in years two, three, and four. Padres have the first option at, at a higher price. If they don't pick it up, he can opt in to stay at a lower price. I think it's a good acquisition. I mean, this this guy, has, I think his career record was is 72 and 50. His ERA is just a shade over four, but that's been skewed by a couple of bad seasons when he's hurt. This guy, to me, becomes your automatic number four starter, and then it pushes everybody else, the Nick Martinez's and the Seth Lugos of the world, back fighting for number five and number six. I like this acquisition because he's, he's gritty. He's got major league stuff. He's pitched a ton of ball in both the National League, where he really excelled, and then what, to me, was a very surprising bounce-back season with the Boston Red Sox. Wait, do you think the Padres are going to go to a six-man rotation? I think they'll try to do it. But, you know, if you go six-man rotation, that means you're less in your bullpen. Mm-hmm. And the Padres do have a lot of numbers stacked up on the bullpen. This is, this is going to be fascinating to see how they, how they juggle the numbers. Uh, you know, Martinez could go back to the bullpen where I thought he really excelled. Lugo 
rebuilt his career pitching out of the New York Mets bullpen. So suddenly, I don't think there should be any concern about the front of the Padres starting rotation. And I think depth-wise, defensively, man, have they got numbers to choose from any day of the week in any different design role uh, for the relief corps. So I, I like that acquisition. Uh, we move on. Let's talk about some other baseball storylines. Uh, let's go to the Dodgers. We'll talk about this situation because this is a very, very different spring training at Camelback Ranch with the Dodgers. You know, they cleared over $101 million in budget space by letting guys go. They're going to get they're going to get draft pick compensation uh, by virtue of losing some of the players that they've lost. They got a lot of new faces on that roster. And the big question uh, as many new guys as they're bringing in, and the fact that they've got all these young guys, what kind of Dodger team is this going to be? J.D. Martinez comes from the Red Sox, and this is an established designated hitter and a strong personality in the, in the clubhouse. They just signed David Peralta, who I think was a really steady guy. Not a star, but steady. He's a career 281 hitter, and he can DH and he can play left field. And Martinez can DH and he can play first base if need be. You know, and then they traded for Miguel Rojas. He can play short, can play second, can play some third, has dabbled in the outfield. He was with the Miami Marlins. Jason Hayward, vested veteran, longtime Chicago Cubs, St. Louis Cardinal, heady veteran guy. Now, they hope he doesn't hit 220, but this guy has produced a large spot uh, in different spots that he's played. Uh, maybe they steal one. I mean, we've talked about the Dodgers being a little bit thin at the back of the rotation. Well, Noah Syndergaard, the ex-Met legend, he's two years removed from surgery. And he pitched pretty well last year, a chunk of it with the Angels. And then, of course, he got traded to Philadelphia right at the very end. If he can be close to what he used to be with the New York Mets, even if he's not hitting 99 miles an hour, boy, that, that that's the guy you give the ball to as your third or fourth starter. And they just re-signed Jimmy Nelson, who was a former frontline starter with the Milwaukee Brewers. He had... Tremendous statistics in Milwaukee, and then he had shoulder surgery and then back surgery. He's hardly pitched for two years, but he's pitched himself back into the mix here because it looks like after multiple surgeries that Jimmy Nelson is is finally healthy. And then so you, you got all those veterans coming in the front door, and we've talked extensively about the shipment that's coming from Oklahoma City. The, the Miguel Vargas is of the world, and Gavin Lux, who's going to be their starting shortstop, and James Outland, who they think is going to be their starting center fielder. And they got three young pitchers, all who got cups of coffee at the end of last season and pitched okay, led by Ryan Pepio. It's fascinating. It's, it's going to be a very, very different Dodger roster, but it's interesting how they're renting all these guys. And they're doing it this way because a year from today, we might be talking about Shohai Otani Showtime at Dodger Stadium. Yeah, I mean, this is this is actually a really good roster. I mean, um, th- these guys they're bringing in, I mean, it's not like the, the Dodgers of the last few years. But this is still a very, very competitive team. You know, they've, they've got a lot of other superstars, you know, Mookie Betts, and we can go down the list of all these other great players. I forgot that they signed Syndergaard. I mean, that was and that's a nice pickup. Um, and Jimmy Nelson used to be a very, very solid starter. So these guys, I and mean, they can make it work. Yeah, Hayward's probably not going to hit. I'm guessing he's going to be like the fourth outfielder. Uh, but you put J.D. Martinez in as a D.H., 
you know, Dave Roberts has got something to work with. Yeah, they lose a little bit of fire in Justin Turner. He had a lousy start last year, but he hit 317 after a first six weeks lousy start. So you lose that that little bit of leadership and, and obviously that productivity. And he was a rock solid everyday third baseman. So there are going to be some different people in the infield for sure. And I know Dodger fan will yell, well, Lee, how are they replacing Cody Bellinger? And my response is, are you upset about replacing a guy hit hitting 206 over the last three years who is making crazy money? Let's try somebody else because Bellinger sure looks like a lost soul out there to me. So Hey, Camelback Ranch, it's going to be fun to observe this thing through the months of March, getting to opening day right around April to see how all these one-year rentals work out. And I agree with you. That's a smart statement. I, I think Syndergaard could be the wild card in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I wonder how they're going to like it at Dodger Stadium chasing the first place Padres. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, the, where the whole thing is flipped on its ear. So, you know, this is a time for the Padres to cash in. I mean, they've got all their ducks in a row. Dodgers taking a step back. It's going to be a great year. Yeah, A year from today, we might be talking about Otani, Dodger Stadium. We'll see. Uh, let's talk about the other team in Southern California, the Angels. Boy, they've gone through changes, and then the one big change that did not occur, Artie Moreno elected not to sell the baseball team. Can they stay healthy? That's a big, big issue. Dodgers have got, obviously, a ton of different questions. The Otani contract, making 30 mil this year. Artie Moreno said this week in Tempe, the first day he was at camp, my goal is to re-sign him and keep him here. So can they do that? Can they keep Mike Trout healthy? Can they keep Anthony Rendon, the third baseman, healthy? Those are the big three stars, and they've been beset by injuries the last couple of years. What's the future for the former number one pick? This guy has hit everywhere except at Angel Stadium, Joe Adele. Is he going to be a starter in the outfield? Is he going to just be the fourth or fifth guy? Might they use him as trade bait and change his address? That remains to be seen. Asking for volunteers at shortstop. I don't know who it's going to be. David Fletcher has been injured a lot. He's not a star at shortstop. What do they do at shortstop uh, with the Angels situation there? And then obviously, you know, the newcomers, what do they do? What role does Hunter Renfro play, the ex-Padre? I think that's a nice acquisition. Heck, if he hits 250 and hits 25 home runs to complement Otani, Rendon, Jared Ward, not bad. And then Brandon Drury, who's a real popular Padre acquisition, does he play shortstop? Does he play first base? Does he go in the outfield? He's kind of a, a five-tool guy who's got a bat, which is kind of interesting. So a lot of storylines with with this Angel team. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how they sort it all out. But let me ask you, Lee, do you think the Angels have a chance to be competitive in the AL West? I mean, that division's stacked. Well, they think, they think that the force-feeding of the young pitchers last year, Suarez, Sandoval, Reed Detmers, that those guys now with a year of that under their belt and they had good outings and really bad outings, they think that this group will take the next step forward to complement Otani. But to me, they're still a little bit wafer thin in pitching. If anybody gets hurt in that rotation, then I think they're going to have problems. And do they have a closer? Well, they picked up Carlos Estevez, former Colorado Rocky. They think he might be the guy or maybe it's going to be closer by committee. But Keeping the everyday lineup on the field, if that if that is item one and that works and that helps them, then I, I think maybe they're going to have a decent season. Playoff team, 
I don't know. That's that's a bit of a reach because, as you say, their mail's being sent to the American League West, and whoa, that's a tough place to play. That is. You know, I, I heard another interesting angle. It's like you're talking about Carlos uh, Estevez, and then there's also um, uh, well Charlie Sheen. That's his name in real life, Carlos Estevez, mm-hmm. right? And so apparently the two guys hooked up, and the the pitcher Carlos Estevez met with Charlie Sheen in L.A. They went to Charlie Sheen's house, hung out. So it's kind of a fun little storyline there. So looking forward to seeing the Angels. I mean, it, it's better when all of the teams in Southern California are competitive. I was a little worried about this franchise before, but I'm happy to see them taking the step forward. But Otani said, well, I'm an Angel for now, and my focus is on this year, which is the right thing to say. But he's not really saying I'm an Angel for life. Only time will tell. Will they offer him $40 million state-of-the-art? Will they take it even higher than that? He's been loyal for a long period of time. we got other baseball stories to talk about. Let's talk about the opening of spring training camps because there's a lot of unique things here to talk about. Uh, and, and starting with the first Cactus League and Grapefruit Circuit game, right behind home plate, John, there's going to be that box there, pitch clock. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, the Dodgers have put the pitch clock at Camelback Ranch where the mounds are as the pitchers go through their bullpen sessions, there's pitch clocks there. So they're gonna they they are teaching them to develop their rhythm right now just in throwing sessions for the 15 second pitch clock. So pitch clock is is item number one. Uh, it's really interesting. Baseball's offenses, I think, are going to look different and feel different because there won't be any more shifts. And I think you're going to see balls get driven through the right side of that infield, and you're not going to be allowed to have uh, infielders with their feet on the back of the grass or playing in short right field as Manny Machado did. I just think offense is is coming back into baseball because of the band and the shift. The the pizza box that you had dinner the other night, (laughs) I'll I'll guarantee you, First time you look at an exhibition game on TV, you're going to be shocked at how big the bases look because the new bases are three inches wider and longer. Mm-hmm. They look like a pizza box. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fascinating to see on the TV and say, what is that? Uh, but they are big and they do look strange, but that, that goes into place too. The ghost runner rule, uh, extra innings, guy will start at second base. The players liked it. You know, I'm kind of a purist. I didn't like it initially. I thought it was a bad gimmick and gadget during the, the COVID era and the pandemic. But the more I looked at it, I said, yeah, that puts a little bit of more oomph, edge into the 10th inning of a ball game because mm-hmm. you don't want that guy to score from second base. So they voted that in. That's a permanent rule going forward, just like the designated hitter has now become a permanent rule in both leagues. And then the positional pitcher situation. Sorry, John, you can't pitch in the eighth inning. If uh, Baseball got tired of what they saw going out last year. There were 139 incidents in which the shortstop or the outfielder or the backup catcher came in to pitch in a blowout game. Baseball does not like that, did not think it was good for the credibility of the game. The only exception, if you're in extra innings and you run out of pitchers, you can use a positional player to pitch. Or if you're down by eight runs in the final inning of regulation, the shortstop can come or third baseman can come or John Riley can come pitch. Uh, but they're, they're going to try to put a lid on this because we had, we had games this year where two or three different positional players pitched at the end of blowout games. Your, your likes and dislikes on those rules. Yeah, I mean, these are really interesting. I mean, the, the positional players thing reminds me of the NBA because it's like a load management thing, right? You know, they don't want to, like, waste the arms of the bullpen pitchers. And for 
a fan paying big money, you know, you don't want to go out there and, you know, see Alexi Amarista pitching, you know. <laughs> so that's just a waste of time. Um, I, the part that I'm really fascinated with is, you know, even prior to making the bases bigger, I was always, I don't know, I just thought one of the beautiful things about baseball is how they got the base distances and the dimensions just right. I mean, you think about 90 feet and how close plays are at first base, how close plays are when they're stealing second. It's a matter of inches. And now with these pizza box bases, that's a matter of inches. And I think it's going to throw some of these things, you know, they're going to be outs that were previously safe. I think this could make a, a subtle difference in the game. Well, we'll be watching a lot of instant replays there. Baseball saying goodbye to an unbelievably popular man. This story kind of came out of nowhere. Tim McCarver has passed away. Legendary St. Louis Cardinal and Philadelphia Philly catcher. Became a broadcaster with the New York Mets, then the New York Yankees, then on Fox TV. A 21-year career as a Major League catcher, Baseball Hall of Famer. He caught two of the greatest, most dominant guys of all time, Bob Gibson, Steve Carlton. Uh, Went to work with Fox did Major League Baseball for 18 years with Fox, did 23 World Series, uh, very opinionated, very strong-willed guy, uh, passed away after a short illness. Jim Cott, legendary broadcaster, great pitcher with the Twins back in the day. Jim Cott was at his bedside as Tim McCarver passed away. Hell, hell of a guy. And Boy, did he have opinions. He he was fun to listen to, but boy, did he have opinions. Yeah, he did. And he, he got a lot of hate, you know, from fans around the league. I mean, I I, re, I started following baseball when he was in his second stint with the Phillies. And that's how I kind of knew him initially. But I just remember that time that Deion Sanders, like, dumped water on his head. I mean, so even the some of the players didn't like his opinions. Exactly. But he I'll tell you what, he was one of the first great players turned Analysts. I mean, they're scattered all over every every TV broadcast now. But he was the first one, so he has he has passed away. Interesting story because baseball is always about good news, and baseball is always about bad news. And at this time of the year, these stories kind of rush to the front. Uh, let's start with Steven Strasburg. This is horrible news. I hate to say his career is in jeopardy, but he's had another setback in a series of setbacks coming back from injuries. He is not at the Washington National Spring Training Camp. This guy had a phenomenal start to his career with his velocity, the electricity, the pitches. Uh, He tore an elbow ligament very young in his career with the Nationals, recovered from that, came back, strung up some really good years. Then he suffered carpal tunnel damage in his wrist from the violent snap action, had that taken care of, and then he developed... It's called a thoracic outlet surgery. It's mm. got to do with ribs and nerves in the upper collarbone area. They operated on it. He did all the rehab religiously, came back, made one start last year, shut it down again, spent the entire offseason rehabbing, went to throw a bullpen this past week. It flared again. He is out. I fear that he may have reached the end of the road, and it's the cruel part of baseball. And he's only 32 years of age. And it, it, it's terrible because he's he's thrown only 30 innings since 2019. Only 30 innings since he signed a seven-year, $145 million contract. So the Nats, the Nats are unfortunately on the hook for the money. 
And unfortunately, I, I just don't know how he comes back from this. A lot of pitchers have gone through that surgery. That surgery is it's like a, a rib presses against uh, a vein that Im- impacts blood flow. And you take the rib out, and usually pitchers are able to come back from it. A bunch of them have, but for some reason, there's some nerve damage that he's dealing with in that neck collarbone area that's caused all this problem. Uh, his his career numbers have been just absolutely tremendous uh, at 113 and 62. Um, it just it's a tough news. And the good news is Cam Cole Hamels has signed a, a contract with the Padres. Uh, he had a phenomenal run with the Phillies. Now he's 39 years of age. Uh, he's he's not pitched hardly at all uh, since 2020. Uh, he's going to start in spring training. We'll see what his velocity is like. He says he's had three different surgeries in the last year and a half while he was out. Uh, the last one was on a shoulder, but he also had a knee and a foot. This was a dominant, dominant pitcher with the Phillies, and then he went on to the Texas Rangers for a group of years. His career record is 163 and 122. This is a big-time arm from years back. I don't know that he makes this team. I find it hard to believe that Cole Hamels would want to start the season in El Paso, but injuries in spring training can change the makeup of your roster, so I guess he's he's a bit of an insurance policy, but I don't quite know where he fits. He did work out. Uh, I, I think he worked out for 11 different teams in a showcase workout uh, in Florida, but he didn't get him many offers, and the Padres signed him to a one-year minor league deal. If he makes the big league roster, it'll cost him only $2 million. Yeah, that's it. It's an interesting signing. I mean, you know, this nice local boy comes home. That's all good. Um, seems like, you know, the, the Preller is just signing all these pitchers around the fringes that could possibly be the five or six starter that can fill in when there's any injuries. But I just think about Strasburg. Remember when he was playing at San Diego State? Oh. And, and that time it was electric and it was like must see. And people were flocking down there to Tony Gwynn Stadium to watch him pitch. I mean, what an incredible talent. You know, you go back to San Diego State having the MVP of the World Series and of the NBA Finals with Strasburg and, Ka- and Kawhi. So we're all rooting for Strasburg to come back. But like you say, he may be near, near the end of the road. Yeah, it's really it's it, tragic. I don't know if that's the correct word. I mean, tragic is Turkey and Syria. But <laughs> yeah. but, but this, unfortunately, injuries are part of baseball. And he was such a physical force pitcher. And the fact that now this thing has flared a third time, they've just been unable to solve it. All right, let's go from there. Let's talk college athletics for just a bit because there's a story out there on the street corner. We're going to probably wind up uh, you know, <laughs> paying attention to. I'm talking about the Pac-12 conference and, and what is about to happen. The Pac-12 is about to expand, and they have talked extensively to SMU. They were in Dallas-Fort Worth this past Wednesday. They talked to San Diego State's people at the Holiday Bowl here. They talked to Fresno State. They have not talked to Boise State. Uh, There's a lot of dialogue as to are these the right teams to add to what will be the Pac-10 the minute USC and UCLA leave to go to the Big Ten in 2024. And and the big debate is, should the Pac-10 add San Diego State and SMU? Are they really adding quality football programs? Or are they going to do it 
because the Aztecs have a legendary basketball program that might be able to replace UCLA as being a player in the in the new conference. Uh, are they doing it because they need to plant their flag in Southern California because there will be no USC-UCLA Pac-12 games? The San Diego State, they have the ability to replace UCLA and Southern Cal as, as a figure of Southern California power football. That's a big thing. Are you doing it just geographically? So you plant your flag in Texas, you plant another flag in Southern California, or you're just doing it to add TV markets. Dallas and San Diego between them, 4.1 million TV sets. But I wrote a column on my website today any of those TV sets tuned to San Diego State football or SMU football? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a big issue there as to what they bring. Uh, are they doing it to add academic uh, integrity to the conference? Uh, SMU's got a great academic reputation. Uh, San Diego State has built its academic reputation. So th- they're trying to put together the 12 teams that – they can then go to their next media partner, whether that's ESPN or Amazon, and say, these are the TV sets that we're going to expose our football programs and basketball programs to uh, sign this contract extension. So it remains to be seen whether they offer the Aztecs and the Mustangs first or whether they do the TV contract first. I just don't know that these two schools add the cachet you want to be a member of the Pac-12. It, to me, it's, with apologies in advance, it's like saying, oh, we're going to add Washington State to the conference. Well, Washington State's not a power. San Diego State's not a power. The one one intangible, though, is Brady Hoke comes from the Big Ten. Brady Hoke knows how to recruit big-time players. And if they get into the Pac-12, on his business card, it'll say Brady Hoke, San Diego State Aztecs, Pac-12 football. He'll be able to recruit big-time players here. But, you know, there's a whole NIL angle to this whole thing. San Diego State's NIL money is minuscule compared to what they're doing at Southern Cal, what they're doing with the Oregon Ducks, Washington Huskies. So just saying you're in the Pac-12 does not guarantee you're going to be able to compete. You know, I'd hate to see these guys join this thing and then all of a sudden realize that, Ooh, we're Washington State. We're going to have a tough time competing. Yeah. A, it's, a, it's so complex, a lot of different layers to it. That's my spin. Um, maybe the Pac-12 should just be 10 for now and just see how all this expansion shakes out. Your reaction? Well, I know they're going back. You know, if you roll the clock back 30 or 40 years, there's a lot of friction, you know, between the UC system and the Cal State system. Sure. And, and, and and I think that was, you know, this notion of academics and do they fit the Pac-12 profile. You know, if there's a vote, I mean, it's a good chance, you know, the Berkeley, UC, well, UCLA would be gone. But Berkeley would probably not want to have San Diego State, you know, in the conference with them. But let me ask you this, Lee. Do you think... Do you think that if is there a chance the Pac-12 could dissolve and would maybe San Diego State be better off if they joined the Big 12? Well, Big 12, I don't think it's going to expand anymore because they just added four. You know, they just added Cincinnati and University of Houston, Central Florida, BYU. So I don't think they're going to get any bigger. I mean, Big 12 did that out of desperation. If I were the Pac-12, I would have conducted a middle-of-the-night raid and taken Oklahoma State and TCU. Mm. and taking them out of the Big 12, moved them out here, because all of a sudden, if you take those two that are good programs and you're linking them with Oregon and you're linking Washington, now you got now you get bigger names. Uh, but then again, there's the emotional departure of those, those schools want to leave 
the state of Texas and leave Oklahoma to come out here. The whole the whole conference expansion thing is so screwed up. I'm sorry. West Virginia Mountaineers in the Big 12 Conference? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, Syracuse Orangemen in the ACC? You think anybody's excited about that? So this this whole thing is so out of control. Uh, would, would, do you think Aztecs and SMU could do well in the Pac-12? Uh, SMU, no. Aztecs, maybe. Um, you know, the basketball Aztecs are right in there. I mean, they, they could win the thing. Um, and football, you know, they've had their moments and they've had a really good record against Pac-12 teams over the last five or six years. Yeah, it's playing a lot of the bottom dwellers, though. Well, they're, they're, the bottom dwellers are still there, and two of the top teams are gone. So they, I think from a football perspective, they could be competitive. Are they going to be going, you know, dominating the Ducks right out of the gate? No. But they can take care of business against Arizona, Washington State. Yeah, they, they, can, they can do some damage. One of the intangibles I'd like to see, and I don't know how the Pac-12 uses this as leverage, because SC and UCLA are gone. And obviously the Trojans and Bruins are going to play games at the Rose Bowl and at the Coliseum, home games against Big Ten opponents. Uh, you think anybody get excited to see Trojans Northwestern? Hmm. Uh, UCLA, Maryland? Nah. But one of the intangibles, if I were the commissioner of the Pac-12, I'd go back to USC and UCLA and say, guys, you got three non-conference games each you have to schedule. Schedule our teams schedule SC to play Oregon in a, quote, non-conference game. There you go. Yeah. 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 Let, let, let's have UCLA uh, play the Washington Huskies in a non-conference game. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you can, sp- you can spread the Trojans and the Bruins across that, that schedule. So somebody plays Oregon State, somebody plays the Washington State Cougars, you know, somebody plays Stanford and Cal. Uh, so. A lot of decisions to be made. It's not going to be easy. Uh, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen. It's going to happen real quick, though. I would I would think within the next four to six weeks, we're going to know what what the landscape of the Pac-12 conference is, is going to look like. All right, let's go from there. Let's talk college basketball. Where do you want to start? Okay, so we talked a little bit about this after last, uh, last Monday's podcast. There's just this crisis in New Mexico State. It's just really ugly. And um, we've been seeing some of the news, so let's, let's break that one down. Well, New Mexico State has suspended its basketball season. They've ended it. Went 9-15, and 15, have canceled all the rest of their games in the WAC. This is the aftermath of two incidents. Last fall, New Mexico State played New Mexico. They are the fierce rivalries. And there was a brawl and there was a shooting. And one of the Aggie basketball players carried a gun into a dormitory at Albuquerque and got involved in arguments with guys who had been involved in the football fight. Guy pulled a gun. Michael Peak, the Aggie guy, had his own gun, killed the guy. Big issue. Then we found out one of the assistant coaches on the Aggies basketball team took the weapon, his cell phone, and his tablet and hid it. And they did not cooperate with police early on. So you got that scandal. And then... Aside from the Michael Peak shooting incident when the basketball team was in Albuquerque to play the Lobos, now you got this. A member of the basketball team finally went to the university police and said he was a victim of violent hazing by at least three veteran players and had been going on since August. And the coaching staff was aware of it and did absolutely nothing. At that point, the New Mexico State president shut the program down, fired the head coach, 
going to clean house of everybody. Three players have already transferred out. It's just an ugly situation at Las Cruces, New Mexico. And Aggie basketball is what finances that whole athletic program because their football program has been down forever and ever. It's just just an awful story there. So that's one item. Uh, the, the other two items in college basketball, they involve Jim Beheim at Syracuse University, who seems to be at war with everybody right now. He's not had a great season. He's at war with the media. He's at war with the NCAA. Uh, he said at a press conference last week that he blames the demise of college basketball on what Mark Emmert and the NCAA allowed to happen. Transfer portal and the NIL. And he says there's too many schools, quote, using money to buy basketball players, and it's not working. It's not working at Pitt. It's not working at Miami. It's not working at West Virginia, etc. So he's been railing on that. And he stood up before he walked out of this press conference. He said, you don't believe what I say? Because he's always telling the media what he thinks is law. (laughs) You don't believe what I say? Go ask Mike Krzyzewski. Go ask Jay Wright why they quit. Why they walked away from basketball at Duke and at Villanova, two Hall of Fame guys. He said, same reason I just gave you, the NIL and transfer portal. And then the other item in college basketball, it's really an ugly story. Colorado State played Utah State a week ago at a a game in Fort Collins. And Utah State's having a master, mystical season. They have a guard from Ukraine. Uh, The kid's playing very well. And as he was getting ready to take a free throw, the fans in the end zone seats in Fort Collins at Mobley Arena just started hassling him and started chanting, Russia, Russia. And it, was, it was awful. Hmm. And, and the coach, Utah State coach, pulled his guys off the floor. Colorado State coach went haywire what his fans are doing. I'm waiting for the Mountain West Conference to maybe hand down some type of financial discipline to Colorado State. It was just deplorable for that student body, kind of like our show, but way beyond good taste, to do that to a player whose family is still in the Ukraine. Think about that. And Nico Medved apologized profusely to the coach, to the player, and to Utah State University. So, boy, what a bad couple of weeks in college basketball. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a rough go for all three of those teams. Um, you know, just thinking about Bayheim's comments, and, you know, you're saying, you know, ask Krzyzewski, you know, what he thinks of the, the, the NIL and the transfer portal or Jay Wright. Well, you know, these are all the blue bloods. These are all of the top, fran- uh, not franchises, but universities that have dominated the sport for decades. Well, now suddenly these mid-majors are getting more competitive because they have access to the guy that maybe was on the, I don't know, let's just say the Syracuse roster, but didn't get many, very many minutes. Now they're transferring into, I don't know, someplace in the Mountain West, and they're we're one of the stars. So I think this transfer portal thing is, in my opinion, good for the sport. You know, agree or disagree. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll buy what you say about the Mountain West. and Because I, I feel that the, the whole chemistry of the Mountain West Conference, the landscape has changed. Because everybody's getting guys out of the transfer portal who can play immediately. Mm-hmm. And, and you raise the real valid point. My backup center at Syracuse is not getting any minutes, goes into the portal, and he winds up at Wyoming. Yeah, Or this point guard was not playing very much on the East Coast, and all of a sudden he's defecting from Kentucky, and he winds up at Colorado State. They got a star. 
I mean, if you go through the rosters, there are D1 transfer portal kids that are all contributing to the Mountain West schools. That's why winning on the road in the Mountain West has now become hard, mm-hmm. really hard, just to ask San Diego State. Uh, so, so I think the portal has helped. Portal has really created chaos. And I, to be honest with you, John, I just don't know how you can keep up with the NIL when those schools in Texas or these guys on the East Coast, the Kentuckys of the world, have got so much wealth to go get any recruit they want. And I don't see how the mid the mid majors have anywhere near enough wherewithal to be able to co- compete to keep players get players, hold on to their own players. I don't care whether it's in the Mountain West or it's the Mid-American Conference or it's the Missouri Valley, all that next level down, that's catastrophe because they can't go get kids because they don't have the amount of money in the NIL to pay, and they're struggling to keep their kids because this kid's phones are ringing all the time. So uh, it's going to change. NCAA has a new director. It's going to change. And the transfer portal is being reshaped as to when you go in, when you come out. Uh, it's it, it can't be the Wild West anymore, but I kind of agree with Beheim on this. I, I think it's created just terrible, terrible chaos uh, in college basketball. Uh, last item here before we go to fans forum, names in the news. Yeah, so Tiger, Jimmy, I mean, we, this is the greatest thing about you, Hacksaw, is that you cover all the sports. We don't just focus on football. We get into auto racing and golf, so let's, let's go down this path. Genesis Open, Los Angeles, Riviera, Tiger Woods, first tournament uh, in more than a year. Tiger, you know, has played in Three majors in recent years has not done well at all. Finished 47th in one, missed the cut in another, and then quit in the third one last year. Uh, the biggest challenge for him to play at Riviera, and he was eight strokes back in the first round, the last I checked, just out of the gate. But the, the, the biggest thing with him is he's practiced, but he's not been able to walk the course. When he played with his son, he used a golf cart. When he practiced rounds, he used a golf cart. Even at Riviera, early week when he practiced, he did not walk all 18 holes. He stopped after 9 or he stopped after 16. And he now openly admits, I don't know that I can walk 72 holes to be in this tournament, but I'm going to try. So, you know, the, the, the physical crisis that he's come through with the ankle, the Achilles, the broken leg, all the surgeries, I think it's still out there. And I, I, I know it's in his heart that he thinks he can still compete. But to me, it's a sad thing to see this guy go out there and just limp around on the course in day one, much less being able to make the cut and play all four days. So I hate to see that happen there. Jimmy Johnson is back. They're running at Daytona on Sunday, the, the Daytona 500. He dabbled in IndyCar for two years. He's a seven-time NASCAR points champion, went to IndyCar. First year, he ran just road races to get acclimated for Chip Ganassi. Last year, he ran super speedways. He actually led the Indy 500 for a group of laps uh, during caution, and it it scared the hell out of him. It is so fast, and and, and the protections in IndyCar are so different than the big box cars that you're protected in a NASCAR. I don't think he liked it. 
the amount of time it took for him to test and learn the intricacies of IndyCar, I just think wore him out emotionally. So he is back. He's running a new team. It's called Legacy Motor Club. It's under the Richard Petty banner. Uh, He is going to run super speedway races. Uh, He's not going to run in the Indy 500 this year, which kind of disappoints me because I thought he did really well at Indy last year, his first time on the track. Uh, But he's back in racing, so we'll see. You start a brand-new team. That's enormous challenge. I mean, you're talking about being an expansion team. That's what they are. How do you compete at that level with, with the next-gen cars? But Jimmy Johnson, running Sunday, Daytona 500. We'll see what kind of speed he's got. Your thoughts on Tiger or your thoughts on JJ? Well, I, I like Johnson, you know, when he was doing Indy, you know, and he's doing NASCAR. I like to see these kind of versatile guys, you know, trying all the different motorsports. Um, so, good. We're going to see Jimmy Johnson back on the track. I'm looking forward to that. But, Jesus, Tiger Woods, man. I mean, the, 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 there, there's going to be I mean, there already are novels and things written about this guy. There's going to be movies about this guy. It's just like a soap opera story. You know, we're going to look in the history books, you know, 50 years from now, and people will still be talking about the talent that he is and how he just wasted it with some of his off-the-field off behavior. You know, it's a, it's a sad story. Well, his off-the-field stuff is obviously legendary, sadly. Uh, but we can't take away the greatness of the player. My goodness, for what he's accomplished over the course of his career in the Grand Slam events and how he just, it was must-see TV every weekend, must-see TV every Sunday in the final round. And what he did in the majors, spectacular. But I, I, I hate to be critical because it's in his heart that he still thinks he can play. But physically, his body has betrayed him because of so many things that he's had. So tough, tough call. We'll, we'll see if, if, if he doesn't do well. Uh, at, at Riviera, if whether maybe he just steps away from it. And he can still play the Grand Slams, but it's not the vintage Tiger that we all came to love and respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, how old is he right now? Pushing 40. Okay, so, you know, it, it's just it's just such a shame. But, you know, I, I think one of the other angles to this whole story is that, you know, he's helping out his kid, Charlie, you know, and he's out there on the course with him. Maybe he's going to be the next coming. You never know. Only time will tell. Hey, we know what time it is now. It's time for Fans Forum. You got questions. We got answers. We invite you to join us very quickly on our live stream. We'll run through a couple of questions. We got some YouTube uh, comments, too. John, where do you want to start? All right. So let's go here to Dave E.K. And he says, one huge factor for the Angels' possible record. New MLB schedule means fewer games against the AL West, more against the rest of the rest of the entire league. Teams play every team regardless of league. Well, I think balance schedule is fascinating to me because if I were an Angel fan, I think I'd get tired of seeing the Astros and the Mariners and the, the, the substandard Oakland A's. I do like uh, the, the fact you're going to play everybody and everybody's coming into your yard and you're going to their yard. I, I think that's a marketing jewel. Uh, and I, I think that's a real positive. It's positive here. You know, Padres, as much as we like to talk about Padre-Dodger rivalry, I think fans like to see the Yankees come this way. You know, they're fascinated to see how Tampa Bay does what Tampa Bay does or what the Minnesota Twins is. The coolest thing is to go to Petco Park and see the guy sitting right behind you wearing Minnesota Twins gear. You know, (laughs) and yeah, I came from Ironwood, Michigan. I'm a Minnesota Twins fan. He moved out here. He got deported out here. So I I think that the new look schedule probably changes the pennant races a little bit. 
And I think the new look, the new look schedule playing everybody, I think, is really great for baseball marketing because you're getting to see things you never, ever, ever see. Now, old traditionalists like you, Life O'Reilly, would say, hey, <laughs> I just want the American League to play the American League and the heck with the inter- interleague stuff and the National League, and then we'll play in the World Series. Well, that's changed. Well, you know, I, now, I'll tell you what. When, when I was a kid, you know, you brought up where the AL and the NL were separate. And so the All-Star Game and the World Series were very special. You know, it was like bringing two worlds together. But, you know, as a fan, you do want to see those other teams. You want to see the Yankees when they come into town. And and then here in San Diego, everybody's from somewhere else. Right. So there are Minnesota Twins fans and Tampa Bay Rays fans. Uh, They're scattered around the county. I like this move as well, because the. If from a marketing perspective, from a ticket sales perspective, these owners need to make money so they can pay, you know, Manny Machado $30 million a year. So they've got to do these things. And I think overall, it's good for the sport. It, our market is so uniquely different from lots of other places. Our market, John, is a melting pot. Mm-hmm. We got everybody. I mean, you, you go see the Padres play the Red Sox. You know how many people from New England who don't speak the language are sitting at Petco Park yes. ta- talking about the Red Sox, <laughs> Boston, and all that. So I, I think the interleague schedule is cool. I think the DH is cool. Uh, I'll, I'll be interested to see what these new rules impacting the pace of play are, are going to be like, too. Next question. All right. So let's, uh, let's roll over here to some of the YouTube comments. And this is um, this is one, you know, we were talking about that cheap shot in the Aztec game against what was it? Was that the Boise game? I get them all mixed up. But anyways, this Larry Hamlet says, I hate to tell you this, Lee, but a win is a win. That's it. All teams go through an offensive lull in a season. Please stress or talk about the many positives. And we need to be thinking about that in last night's game against Fresno. Understand they are 21 and five. That's pretty impressive. Understand this. And you're correct, Larry. Uh, They've won in every big, tough venue in the Mountain West. And as John and I just talked about, everybody in the Mountain West has got players now via the transfer portal, and it's changed everything. Road games in the Mountain West are really hard, and the Aztecs have won them. Whether they dominated them or they survived Fresno State, thank goodness, two for 25 threes. I've never seen that ever in my life. But the only thing that worries me about San Diego State is, you know, once you get to March Madness, Larry, and you get into the tournament, you're not going to be playing some of these substandard Mountain West teams any longer. There won't be any San Jose States or Fresno once you get to March Madness. And if you, if, if you view yourself as a Sweet 16 Elite 8 team, you can't have your guards going 7 for 24 shooting or have these in-and-out nights where one night Keyshawn Johnson hits six baskets in the first seven minutes, then disappears, or nights in which Nathan Mensah goes 0-0 and gets in foul trouble. So uh, the Aztecs are good, but once we get to March Madness, this is a whole different level. So I, I like the team. I think the coach is a spectacular human being. They recruit really good kids. But, geez, this late in the season, to see that the stigma of how bad that game at Fresno State was, wow. Well, I mean, imagine they get into March Madness, and they're in the first and second round, and they're holding the opposition to 43 points. Is that a recipe for success? It's ugly, but I think that can still work. Well, ugly is ugly, and it's a win. 
But guys in March Madness, they can shoot 43% or go two for 25 from the arc? Yeah, I don't know. That's open for debate. But we'll see how they finish the season. I do think they win the Mountain West Conference Tournament because that's not a home game any longer. That's on a kind of a neutral court in Vegas. I think they'll do pretty well there. Next question. Well, uh, that's Viejas East, by yes. the way. The Aztecs dominate there in uh, Las Vegas. All right, this is from Tyrone Biggums, and he's talking about Jim Ursay. He says, Ursay is a good owner. The issue is Ballard has been such a failure. Ursay lost trust in the process. His issue is he is too loyal to Ballard. He needed to fire Ballard and hire a new GM that he trusts to do his stuff. Well, but, you know, while Ballard's been there as general manager, they got one of the really good offensive linemen in Quentin Nelson, and that general manager drafted Jonathan Taylor and Najee Himes, the two running backs, and he's the one that drafted these young wide receivers led by Paris Campbell and Michael Pittman. I mean, what's beset in Indianapolis has been injuries, and obviously the one-year rental uh, with the quarterbacks has not worked out very well. So we'll see. Station comes with a good track record. He's learned under some really good people. He coached here in San Diego. He took a lot from the relationship with Philip Rivers. He obviously did a really good job in Philadelphia with Sirianni. So I, I, my gut feel is let's just see how this works, and I'll be intrigued to see what quarterback they wind up with. Now they're not. I don't know that they're going to get a shot at C.J. Stroud, nor are they going to get a shot at Bryce Young unless they trade up to a top five pick. So they got a lot of work to get done. But uh, I like the hire of the quarterback because I think he's a he's a bright light. Yeah, I mean, it's funny we talk about Ursay and, and some of his nonsense, you know, as an owner. Um, but it always starts at the top. I mean, we've seen that in all the franchises. You have a good owner, you get good management, and it just works its way down the org chart. Um, we'll see what, what, the, what the Colts do. Maybe they'll get Bryce Young, and that would be great for that franchise, but they're going to need to get a QB. Oh, definitely. As I said, you know, once Andrew Luck retired, uh, off the top of my head, they went through Jacoby Brissett. They went through Philip Rivers, then they went through Carson Wentz, and then they went through Matt Ryan, and that was kind of a disaster. Yeah. So, so we'll see what this draft brings us. Next question here on Fans Forum. Fans Forum. Here we go. This is from M. Allen talking about Kyrie, and he says, Dallas and Phoenix will play for the Western Conference Final since Durant and Irving are the two best at their positions in the league. Well, which Kyrie shows up, that's a big issue. You know, Ky- Kyrie came out flying his first couple of games with the Mavericks. Uh, Durant has not has not played yet for Phoenix. He's coming off the injury issue. I mean, there's no doubt that, that, that Phoenix will be tremendous in terms of starters. Devin Booker is just a great talent, and Durant is Durant, and that's a Hall of Fame career guy there, and he's still got CP3. The thing, however, is that Monty Williams no longer has the bench that he had before, because they traded Cam Johnson, and they traded the other young Ford. Mikael Bridges had 45 the other night in Brooklyn. So they're not going to be quite the same Phoenix Suns basketball team uh, in in terms of depth. Uh, Dallas, two-man team, do they have enough firepower around Doncic and around Kyrie? And I know you make the trade for Kyrie, and the flashpoint is, boy, look at this guy's explosiveness. But please, look at his track record as a teammate. What he did in Cleveland that got him out of there. Went to Boston, and that was supposed to be the last piece of the puzzle. What he did in Boston, he left the Brooklyn Nets like a five-alarm fire in utter disarray because all the junk he got involved in off the field. So a lot lot of NBA playoff games to be played. Then obviously the play-in series to get to the start of the postseason. But there's no doubt that the NBA West 
That's big boy basketball. It is. And, and you know, the, the Warriors are, are in trouble now because Steph Curry's hurt. So um, there's a lot of changes. I've been hearing some really good things about the Lakers and the new chemistry with their new players. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, would it, wouldn't it be interesting if it was the Suns and the Mavericks? But, you know, to go back to your other comment, you talked about Mikael Bridges. Have you been following the story about how he's been, you know, shouting out to Manny Machado and the Padres yep. with the whole head bob thing. I mean, that's kind of cool, you know, so good on those guys. We'll see what happens with the Lakers. And I'll tell you, nobody's talking about the Clippers. And I like the acquisitions that they made because it gave them three-point firepower to complement Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. We'll see if this group comes together. They added a big man as a backup uh, at center. Uh, we'll see if, if the Clippers turn out to be more dangerous because I think the Clippers now, John, are a lot more deeper. Hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed our Thursday podcast. We are here Thursdays. We do bonus podcasts on Monday. Please register, subscribe, so you'll get all the alerts, and check my website, leehacksawhamilton.com, for all the written stuff in the world of sports. Also remind you, tweet, text, use Instagram. Tell your friends about what we're doing on our YouTube channel weekly. John, have a great sports weekend. We'll Mm -hmm. catch up to you on Monday. Looking forward to it. Thanks again for being with us. Talk to you soon. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.